This week's guest on Unbeatable is Bob Baumgartner. You've probably never heard of him before. He was a high school teacher and now a college track and field and history teacher in New Jersey. What makes Bob's story incredible is the back-to-back challenges that he went through and not just what he went through, but how he handled it. In fact, Bob makes a statement today. I've never heard this statement before, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. You gotta hear what Bob says next when you're going through incredible hardships. So stay with me for this episode of Unbeatable with my guest, Bob Baumgartner. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Bob Gardner, thank you for joining me on this episode of Unbeatable. Can I just call you Bob? Is that cool? Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Bob, for being with me on this episode. And if I'm right, you're coming to me from the New England states, right? Where are you living right now? Uh, New Jersey. So you were born in Jersey and you stayed in Jersey. Is that right? Well, not Jersey, Jersey, the South Jersey aspect of it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I did a little bit of research on you when you were going through school, and it sounds like you were a pretty accomplished athlete. Tell me a little bit about sports in school when you were growing up. Well, when I was in high school, I played football and track. Uh, I played with Super Bowl MVP Joe Flacco, which was Okay, hold on. You two were on the same team together? Yes, we were. And which Um, of the two, just be honest now, was the better athlete? Him, absolutely. Oh, I thought I was sure you were going to tell me it was you, man. Our athletic director said this, and I didn't think much of it at the time. He said, but I knew he made it when Notre Dame showed up to talk to him at school. Uh, (laughs) Notre Dame showed up to your school and said, hey, you got a player on the field. We need to talk to you. Exactly. What That's position what did you it. play when you were playing football with with the legend Joe Flacco? What position did you play? I was defensive and offensive tackle. Oh, so you got a chance to tackle him a few times, put a hurt on him. Not in a scout team. We weren't allowed to do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Hey, I'm a huge track and field fan. So you got to tell me a little bit about your track and field days. What did you do? What events? When I was in high school, I did shot put and discus with a, a dabbling and javelin a little bit. Uh, and then when I got to college, I picked up the hammer throw and a 35-pound weight throw. You must have been a big dude. Everybody that I know that was throwing a hammer, putting the sh- or shot put, those dudes were big as a truck. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because um, I had one of my teammates that we did the hammer together. He was like 6'6", three-something, whatever. You know, At that time, I was about 6'3", 245, 250. But I was pretty quick. I could move uh, pretty quick. So that that was a helpful thing. I wound up having our uh, school record for a 35-pound weight for about 10 years. Really? And then some guy beat me by a quarter of an inch. Oh, that's that's terrible. Yeah, man, I was a track and field guy. I was a distance, a middle distance runner. Um, so I was really tall and I was thin. But I, I dabbled at a couple of other events in track and field. And I tried the shot put a time or two. And it went like 12 inches away from me and fell right at my feet. And I was like, obviously, this isn't for me. Yeah, it was good. It's fun. I mean, I enjoyed coaching it, too. So it was a good time. 
the guys that can do javelin, the guys that could do discus, they really impress me because you got to have a bit of rhythm for mm-hmm. those events, right? It's not just sheer muscle. You got to know some, not just technique, but you got to be able to control your body a little bit. Yeah, you do because there's only a seven foot circle you have to stay in. You know, it's yeah. not that big. So did you get a, a, a scholarship, a track and field scholarship to college or did you just no. kind of walk on a college team? No, because where I went to school was Division Three, so there's not athletic scholarships. Uh-huh. I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship from my high school to, to go there, but yeah. I walked on for four years. I enjoyed it. We traveled a, a little bit, not really far. We went down to Virginia and so forth, but it was a good time. I enjoyed every bit of it, and I coached for a long time, so good time. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your college days because I want to hear what was it about school that got you hooked and made you decide you wanted to study history of all things. Why history? I always liked it. Uh, I think one of the things my dad would take me to different places. Uh, I remember he took me to Gettysburg for the first time. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, that kind of hooked in me because for a long time I went to the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College every year. Uh-huh. Some of my best friends are from that like we still text each other random history jokes uh to this day okay <laughs> i need to hear one of these do you have one on the on the cuff a history joke one just sent me one the other day okay it was you, uh, you gotta picture. let the audience hear it because i'm a history nerd too and when you right. say history jokes i'm thinking everybody else that's listening right now is scratching their head like what on earth is a history <laughs> joke so let's hear one so a friend of mine sent me a picture of Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln, and it said, Lincoln grossed X amount of money in theaters, which is odd because historically Lincoln doesn't do well in theaters. <laughs> doo That's the whole Abraham Lincoln yep. assassinated in Ford Theater. Yep. Um, yeah, you're right. Historically, Lincoln didn't do very well in theaters. No. <laughs> hey, you do live around some incredible early American history right there in mm-hmm. your part of the country. I mean, some major conf- uh, Civil War battlefields or some major, not Civil War, but Revolutionary War battlefields um, right there. Trenton, Princeton, a couple of other pretty amazing battlefields there. Yeah, it's a great place to go, a great place to be. I mean, Independence Hall's right over the river. Um, you know, you can, we took my daughter over there, you know, a year or two ago and just walked her around and everything. And going down to Virginia, you see a lot of civil war battlefields just within a five, five hour drive. It's really not terrible. Yeah. When you say you live in South New Jersey, where, uh, you know, what part of the state are you in? Right across the Walt Whitman bridge from Philadelphia. Okay. Um, so you, you get hooked on history But here's something that I'm interested in. You decide you want to teach it. Now, there are some historians that are writing books and making a whole lot of money. I have I read most of the the, most of the uh, prominent historians. Right. But teaching history, you're virtually guaranteed to be living right above the poverty line. So why did you decide you want to teach? And for the audience, spoiler alert, teach high school of all things, because this has got to be one of the most challenging, you know, uh, parts of education is to convince a high schooler to get excited about history. The first thing that really sort of drove me to it was just, I realized how much we didn't know. Like I would, I would see people on Jay Leno and you would ask him a question like, who is the 
like second president oh, or, yeah. or whatever, and, and they wouldn't know. And so many of my students, when I started, I would give them basically it's like a jaywalking type thing. It would be a uh -huh. PowerPoint, knock the cobwebs loose over the summer, you know, things like that. And sometimes I would ask questions, and the answers I would get would be like, okay, all right, we can kind of go from there. But one that I remember distinctly was I asked what the capital of New Jersey was. And the girl said, do you mean the N or the J? She thought I meant capital oh, letters. Oh, the capital letters yeah. for the word New right. Jersey. Right. Wow. And so like things like that, in my own way, I guess it was a little bit of my, I don't want to say penance, but my ability to try and get people to learn about our past which yeah. I think they should all know. It's not something that you should eh, throw your hand up and, and move forward because you could ask somebody a question and have a basic explanation of how we got to where we are today by looking at the past and learning from our mistakes or, or not learning from whatever the case may be. But you have to know it in order to make this decision. I always felt that the president should have a cabinet of historians and say, here, this is what that's going on now what historically has worked well in this area tell me hey you ought to run you ought to be the you know the secretary of that cabinet position that historical cabinet position <laughs> bob um, you and i could not agree more on what you just said i am absolutely convinced uh, it drives me bonkers by the way when i watch the man on the street interview and they're asking people just the most basic historical questions and they don't know the answer they can tell you what the celebrity did to their latest hairstyle or who's dating who, but they have no clue about any of the relevant facts of not just U.S., but world history. Blows me away. But when we're at the diner dining room table, my family and I, we would often have conversations and we would, the conversation would easily turn to history. And I would do the exact same thing. Like, hey, listen, it's very obvious where we are today because of how we got here there's just not a lot of people that pay attention to how we got here. Mm -hmm. And that is why history is such an important subject. I also think some people get their history from movies and that that's not always that's really bad. If yeah. not history at all. Yeah. <laughs> and if it is history, it's just really bad history. Yeah, Worse absolutely. than Wikipedia history. If there is such a thing. Okay. So you decide to go to school, you study, um, uh, history, you decide you want to teach history and you teach not for a short stint, but you spend 16 years teaching high school history. Mm -hmm. Describe a little bit of what life was like in the classroom for you, man. It was different with each year. Um, and that's one of the things I think any teacher will tell you is the kids make it like as long as if the kids oh, yeah. are there and you can work with them, it's fine. And that's probably the best treat of it all. Like, you know, as you said before, you're not going to get paid a lot of money. But you get to learn a lot from the kids as well. Like that's how I was able to connect some things because they would tell me what pop culture is because I have no idea and then find a way to, to loop it in. But the thing was just by making them realize, hey, this became this and they would start thinking. Once they got the yeah. idea in their head, they might go looking for it. There were some things I didn't anticipate uh, when I went in there. Like when you go through teaching school, they don't tell you some of the things kids are going to do. Like uh, a hairbrush getting stuck in the mouth or uh, somebody getting stapled. A hairbrush got stuck in someone's mouth. Yeah. Awesome. It, it happens. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and, and things like that. But you go you go with the flow. 
you know, and every time kids are getting in each other's face, you try to separate and make sure yeah. they're not going to hurt anybody or anybody else. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was still fun because it was never the same day. You go in, it would be a Monday, but it would be a different Monday than a Monday before. Yeah. It'll be different from the one that would follow. Yeah. And as long as you, as long as you respected the kids enough, they would respect you at least at the beginning. And then things just, COVID really got things messed up. Oh yeah, it did. Line and it was difficult. You know, yeah. and I felt bad because I went to Walgreens to pick something up one day and the girl behind the counter was one of my students, but I didn't know because she was on the computer and I couldn't really tell who it was and she wow. never participated. So it was like that in and of itself to me was, wow, I'm in a classroom where I don't know who these kids are. Yeah. Which is something I didn't ever want to have happen, but it was kind of happened. Yeah, COVID affected everybody on the planet, literally, and it affected all of us differently, but for teachers and students it was a life-altering uh you know event mm -hmm. because of the way that you had to deliver content and the way students got it yeah yeah when did you decide to go move on to teach at the collegiate level uh 2022 was my last um year 21 to 22 was my last year in the school so 22 to 23 is my year at the college and tell everybody where you teach and what you teach for them. You know, show off a little bit. It's okay. Yeah, Rowan University in Glassboro, New Jersey. And I teach cultural geography and American military history. And I don't have the first idea what cultural geography means. So you're going to have to explain that one to me. Okay, so basically, if you think of geography, think of the maps and everything. But we think of the culture in those given areas as how they're indicative of what happens in those areas so for example like you grew up in kansas right you were born in kansas and so not that, really but go ahead yes <laughs> that area of the world um has certain culture compared to the eastern part of the country right. and, and so forth because i know georgia you look at it differently than new jersey and new jersey looks at california differently than so that's kind of what we look at but from a world perspective i see yeah, yeah. And how's it going? You're now teaching at the, you know, the next level. Are you enjoying it? Is it, it's yeah. obviously different than high school, but is it, it, is, is it good? But I still think COVID has an effect on the students that I have. Like you can tell, cause I, uh, the cultural geography is a freshman level class. Uh -huh. So I can see the effect is still kind of pouring in in yeah. a way, like where some students are like, well, I just want to do my presentation on the computer. I said, no, you're going to do it in front of the classroom. You got to stand up and be a real person again. Yeah. And then they, they don't, I don't know if they don't like it or if it's just because they're so used to computers from growing up. I mean, what, from kindergarten, they have to work on computers, right? Right. So it's a lot different than what we've seen. Um, you also coached track and field while you were teaching both at high school. Did you coach at the collegiate level too? Or are you I coaching did. now? My, uh, my first two years teaching at the high school level, I coached winter track at the high school, but then I coached spring track at a local community college for two years. Okay, I'm just trying to get a mental picture of winter track and field in New Jersey. Is this indoor? Tell me it's not outdoor. Well, we did we did have polar bear meets, which were outdoors. <laughs> okay, we call them polar Holy bears for smokes. a reason. But we have, um, when I was in high school, we used to have the indoor meets over in Pennsylvania at Haverford College. Uh -huh. And our state championships would be at Princeton University. But since that time, they put a bubble it's literally like a practice bubble that you may have seen from some of the old pro teams yeah. back in the 70s uh -huh. like that's what it is and we have a 200 meter track in there and we cram everybody in there for their winter track meets and during hurricane sandy it actually got ripped down so really? 
Yeah, so the season got delayed a little bit. But it, it's interesting because for the pole vault, you can't take the poles in without going through an airlock or else the thing will just deflate. Yeah, right. It'll it'll yeah. cause the roof to collapse. So it's a whole different uh, genre because coming from where I was teaching in Runnymede to go to Tom's River, that's an hour ride one way uh-huh. after your school to go to a meet to then hop on the bus, go back an hour to come back to school the next day. Yeah. So some kids were, if they want to win a track team, they, they've been through the pace. So they're usually pretty good students. You know, it's just one of those things, but. Yeah. Uh, when you say polar bear meet, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, there's no way I'm going to set a personal record when I'm out there running in sub freezing temperatures or trying to figure out how to clear the high jump bar, you know, in those kind of weather. And it's going to hurt. Even hitting those soft mats are going to hurt in that kind of temperature. Absolutely. Every And the shot puts, if you weren't careful, could freeze to your neck a little bit. <laughs> oh, I just got this great image in my mind of a guy who's throwing with all of his might, but it's not going anywhere because the, <laughs> the, the shot yeah. is stuck to his yeah. neck. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, by this point in the interview, man, people are hearing a little bit about your background. They're hearing about you as an educator and as an athlete, but they're also asking themselves, Jeff, this doesn't sound anything like your normal unbeatable interview. What's the rest of this guy's story? So now let's roll up our sleeve, Bob, and get into the rest of your story. When did you start having some health problems? Well, my first you know, big health problem, I found uh, three days before my 20th birthday, I had a grand mal seizure. So I had an epileptic seizure in uh, my grandparents' house. And it was at that point they diagnosed me with epilepsy. So Now, did you have any indication? Was there any signs that something like this was possible? No. And that was the thing we mentioned to the doctors. Like, this has never happened before and like that. And uh, they said, what? It just can happen that way because epilepsy doesn't necessarily mean that it's genetically inherited, right? Because we're taking no one in my family. Right. Nowhere. And if it doesn't necessarily mean it's a, something that can be inherited like that. You don't necessarily have warning signs until something like this happens. So. I got to I gotta hear some more about this, though, because I'm thinking there's somebody driving right now and they're listening to this episode and they're saying, wait, are you telling me, Bob, that I might have epilepsy tomorrow and nobody on the planet will know about it until it happens? Is that how epilepsy happens? Is that what happens to the human body? No, it, it depends on how it affects you. Like you, there's certain types of seizures. I had a grand mal seizure where basically my entire Which body is the big rigid. one, right? Yeah. Then you have absence seizures, petite mal seizures, and so forth. And when I was on my medication, so I just started on my medication, and then I had what they would define as like a partial seizure, where uh-huh. I just stared straight ahead. Like I was talking to my dad, and the next thing I knew, I was just staring straight ahead. I could hear him. I felt him touching me, but I couldn't respond. You couldn't move, couldn't no. change so your, he, you know, your view. I, right. I was sitting on a stool, and he just kind of had to get me down to the floor. But that was because they said I wasn't on enough medicine for for my size at the time. It's like, okay, fine, you know, whatever it is. But the human brain is so different for everybody. Yeah. So the way it affects people, it's, it's completely different. Now, if they had done a brain scan of my brain before, maybe they would have found it. But uh-huh. there was no reason to do that before. Yeah. I mean, the right. most thing I had was uh, hearing loss. That was the only thing we knew for sure. And then this happened, and it was just, okay. Now we move on and figure it out. 
By the way, the hearing loss, that came early on for you, right? Congenital. Yeah. yeah so um, when I was in kindergarten, my teacher used to tell my mother, and of course, my mother tells me this 20 years later because I don't remember it. But uh, she used to tell my mom, he would just stare at me. And it's not like he's being disrespectful, but he would just stare. And my first grade year is when we found out that I had the hearing loss. Uh-huh. I had a, te- uh, a speech therapist. And they come to find out, well, this speech and the hearing problem, that makes sense now, right? But they had sent me to a speech therapist, and she was convinced I wasn't going to graduate high school because I just couldn't figure right. out. Yeah. So they went and took me to audiology to say, well, that's what the problem is. You have congenital hearing loss. And did they have to do, like, some treatment for you? Uh, I had a hearing aid. like that? Yeah. I was given a hearing aid, which I wore all the way up into college. And what's one of my education professors told me, he said, either you get one of the expensive ones that fits all the way in your ear or you learn to be without it because they'll see that and they won't want you in a yeah. classroom. Yeah. Now, anybody who's listening to this episode who is a, around somebody who has been diagnosed with epilepsy, they know how life-changing that diagnosis. It's not the seizures. It's just the diagnosis itself. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are listening, Bob, that have never been around epilepsy. So you got to tell them what that diagnosis now means to being in the classroom, driving a car, just being in public, and how it can limit you if you're not careful. So for me, I was fortunate enough that I kind of know what my aura is. The aura is the part before the seizure comes on. Yeah, you can anticipate I'm starting to get close, right? Right. And so usually when something like that happens, the first thing I do is I lay down and I try and sleep or what have you. But I can then at the same time, as you said, driving a car, I know I can pull over now because I'm going to need to. Right. What the difficult part of it was is when I got diagnosed the first time, I was not allowed to drive for about six months to a year. It was uh, something they were going to revisit after about six months and see how my treatment was going and so forth. Yeah. Would so you I, hold on just a second? Would you explain that to the listener? Because they're saying, I get seizure, but what do you mean you can't drive? So explain the, the, the medical reasons why the doctors won't let you drive. So what happens is when a seizure is given, at least in New Jersey, I don't know about everywhere else, they report it to the state DMV. And then the state DMV says you're on a medical suspension for whatever. You're taking your license away. Right. The reason why they tell you not to drive is because you're in command of a vehicle. And if you have a seizure where you can't control your body, you can't control that vehicle. You're all of a sudden hurling forward at however fast you're going uncontrollably and you have no control over what you hit. So they're taking you off the road as a safety precaution for the rest of the road until, you know, you're in much better condition. And so for me, it was about six months time frame before the state said I could drive again. And you so were 19 told, or 20 years old at the time, right? Yes. So this is this hurts real bad not being able yep. to drive for six months. Well, I was a commuter to school. Uh-huh. I lived at home and drove to school yeah. at Rowan. So what I did was I had to take a bus to and uh-huh. from. And so my parents would, my, my mom works as a nurse. So she would get up early in the morning, drop me off. And my dad, who worked nights, would pick me up when I came back. And that was how mm-hmm. we worked our schedule until I was able to drive again. But not only that, like my doctor was saying, well, I don't want you to have this like caffeine or anything that's like yeah. an energy boosting drink. Which I never really liked Monster or anything like that, but I could take a Coca-Cola once in a while, you sure. know? And I couldn't do any of that because it was the fear of what it might do to the brain mm-hmm. right afterwards. And so, not only was it that, but also I had to change certain things with my life. I 
going into the ocean. I can't swim by oh, myself. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. yeah. I can't, I shouldn't go into a pool by myself. Right. Right. Because even if it's a, a, a shallow pool for children, if you right. have a seizure, you're going to be under the water and unable to respond or unable to move anything. Exactly. Yeah. And then also as well, the other thing was, uh, as I said before, as a thrower, I used to do all the Olympic lifts. I can't use free weights now. Because heaven yeah. forbid you have one and it drops on your head. Oh, or drops man. On yeah. So everything has to be machine based or like a Smith machine with a stopper yeah. on. That's the only way I can't do full free weights anymore over my head. Huh. And when I would throw, I would have to go sit for like an hour afterwards to calm my body down to make sure the stress wasn't you know, too much yeah. before I right. could do anything. Yeah, I've been around people while they were having a seizure. It scares the daylights out of everybody loved ones, even total strangers, when they see that electrical charge go through the human body and all of those muscles, you know, constrict and, and, uh, stay that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it makes people, it, it's really, really scary for people to watch that little alone to go through it. Um, but Hey man, I know this part of your story. So for you, hearing loss seizures, that's just the tip of the iceberg. What happens next? So fast forward to 2008, I'm 24 years old, starting my third year of teaching and come home from grad school. And, and this is where you know how people say there's like that divine intervention or just something like a hand. And this is where that comes from because I was getting ready to shower or whatever. And I felt something that there is no reason I would have felt unless somebody was guiding to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was yeah. no way. And so I say, well, something's not right. And then that Friday I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. It was just one of those moments where you don't realize what happens. It just does. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, well, it might just be, might not be anything, but that same voice in the back of my head is saying, no, you need to get this checked out. And so that's what I wound up doing. When you went to the doctors, they told you cancer. Mm-hmm. What was your first reaction? Like what went through your mind? You just showed up, said, hey, something's not right here. I was just checking myself out in the shower and something's not right here. They do some tests and then they say cancer. How do you respond? What what goes through your mind? So the first appointment was I went to my primary and he said, I'm not sure what this is. So he sent me for a stat ultrasound. Uh-huh. Okay. The most uncomfortable thing in the world at that point, as you can imagine. Uh-huh. Um, and then I go back the next day to see a urologist who says, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And I said, okay, I have it. What's next? And he says, you're you need 24 years old. Is that how old you are right now? 24. Yeah. Yeah. 24. And he says, you need an orchiectomy, which is a fancy medical term saying they're going to cut off the infected testicle. Yeah. That was more or less the, the, the bricks on the chest at that uh-huh. point. Because I knew my grandfather had um, prostate cancer, so I knew yeah. the whole idea of chemotherapy. I, I get that. But that was just jaw-stopping right there, really. Because you know, he said, okay, we'll see you on Tuesday. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, like, they're giving you lots of time to process this, right? right. Like, hey, we're going to cut off one of your testicles, and I'll see you in a couple of days. Yeah. That was, and like, to me, I'm like, okay, he's doing it Tuesday. Either that means 
he's doing it because he knows my mom's a nurse in this office or it's something I need to get taken it's care really of. It's really serious quick. and he needs to get it you know, off, yeah. uh, cut it off right away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, know, that was that was the interesting part of the conversation. But, you know, sense of humor can help bring like yeah, things. Absolutely. And so in my head, when he was telling me this, I, I think back to the Three Stooges where someone said something, oh, I'm going to cut your finger off. And this champ says, can't I keep it? I had it ever since I was a little kid. And there, there's some validity to it. But at the same time, I'm looking at it's a traitor. Get rid of it. I, I don't need it if it's going to make me sick. Yeah. You know? Bob, you may not know this, but my best friend in the world, a guy by the name of Aaron Weaver, was in his late 20s, early 30s when he noticed something was wrong down there. He was diagnosed with testicular cancer and he went through this intense cancer treatment. It actually became more than just testicles. Um, and eventually he was killed in action while going to get cancer treatment checkups Um in while he was serving in Iraq. But I watched Aaron. This is strong and tough and one of the most physically gifted men I've ever seen on planet Earth. And I watched what this thing did to him. But the word cancer alone was a nut was hard enough. In fact, for the listeners, if you haven't done it, go back and listen to episode two, the very second episode of this podcast. I interviewed his wife, Nancy, and their daughter, Savannah, and what it was like to live with a guy by the name of Aaron, what it was like to lose him under these incredible circumstances. But I walked with Aaron and Nancy all the way through this cancer diagnosis. And just hearing the word cancer is devastating. If you're 75 years old, if you're 24 years old, now you're thinking to yourself, is my life over? And how do you handle it? And really, Bob, I want to know, like when you go home from the doctor's office and they say, okay, see you on Tuesday for surgery. I want to know how you process through that, man. It was tough to process uh, at first because right after he told me that I needed to go get some blood tests done and everything uh -huh. that night. But I said, I can do it. I can do it. But I also know that having God with me the whole time was going to be very helpful. Yeah. Um, I have been incredibly involved in my church and I, I know that he's going to protect me. And I just prayed that he would because I knew that he would. But at the same time, I was also, if, you're doing this for your glory, then that's what matters. I mean, whether it's I survive or whether it's I don't, that's really what matters in this case. But what made it difficult was my sister was away at school and she came home because she had thought- She that, heard about the cancer, right? Yeah. And she had came home and she said, I, I, I thought you were like going to be shriveled. I said, no, no, no. I just got diagnosed. I didn't do the chemo yet. Like in, in her yeah. mind, like I had just completely- shriveled to like a cinder or something. And when she came home and saw me that I was okay at the time, and I said, Dude, we can do it. We'll make it. And my grandfather, I mentioned before, he went blind at 75. Okay. So he, he went blind at 75 and it was his sense of humor kept him going. And so in my head, I'm like, if I can find the, the sense of humor in this and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, and that I, that's one of my gifts. I think that God bestowed upon me, like my sense of humor just to see these sorts of things. Yeah, I'll that's where all those terrible history jokes come from. Yes, yes. And I <laughs> I actually had my students say, you can't make dad jokes. You're not a dad. And then when I had my daughter, I said, yeah. now I can. 
All you right. know? So, yeah. but yeah, okay, and it so was just one of those things that you, you have to do. Yeah. You can't just sit there. Well, eh, maybe, maybe not. No, you have to do it. You can't just lay down at that point. Now describe what the doctors say the treatments look like. Okay. So we're going to do surgery on Tuesday and what else? So the chemotherapy treatment that I was getting was something called a chemotherapy plasma where uh -huh. you would put it in your body and it would last for so many weeks and you would get another. And so he said, we can make this work. You caught it early enough. Good chance that things are going to go smooth. You should be okay. And then he told me. You should be okay because no doctor, when they say the word cancer, is going to make any guarantees after this, right? Right, right yeah. Absolutely. And then he says, you know, you're going to lose your hair. I'm like, I don't have any. I'm not really worried about it. And, and that was the weird thing about the whole process, the whole conversation. They're telling me I'm going to lose my hair, but I don't have any. Yeah. Are they going to grow it magically for me? Like at that point, I said, OK, you know what? I got this because I know what matters. It's not hair because I don't yeah, have any. Of course. Just making it through and doing what I need to do for me and my family. Yeah. What was the chemo like? How long did it last? How did it impact you? The weirdest thing about chemotherapy for me was my side effects were four hours of heartburn followed by four hours of hiccups, like in rapid succession. <laughs> and I don't uh, know. I don't mean to laugh you, at you, but four hours of hiccups sounds miserable. The heartburn sounds terrible. The hiccups sound worse. And teaching, I, I hiccuping yeah. while I'm teaching, I'm like, yeah. how am I going to make it through the day? I, I was praying for four hours of heartburn at yeah. school. Like it was, and the one day my dad said to me, what are you doing? I said, I, I can't stop. It yeah. was, and you know, and, and I couldn't eat um, a lot of the same stuff. And, right. and that yeah. was, that was all right. You know, whatever. I figured out bland foods and that, that wasn't really yeah. a big deal, but the heartburn and the hiccups, I, I even said to my doctor, is this normal? He goes, no, I've never heard of it before. <laughs> okay. So yeah. I guess it's one of those things where everybody just uh, reacts to it differently. But yeah. it was the oddest thing. I mean, I was tired and so forth. But, yeah. you know, teaching and coaching in grad school, I really think helped just drive me and focus me that I still had to do these things. Because sometimes you get um, diagnosis like this and you, you say, okay, I'm going to take time for myself. But sometimes right. that becomes a trap and, and you don't keep pushing. So I think that helped me a lot, uh, keep myself on point in order to be able to push through. Did you lose a lot? I mean, you must have been a big dude if you were throwing the hammer. Mm -hmm. uh, did you lose a lot of weight and did uh, it impact you that about way? 30 pounds, I think. Yeah. I think about 30 pounds I lost and um, it was it was odd because just before I got diagnosed, I was actually out in uh, California at the Olympic Training Center yeah. and uh, so I was working out there and everything. But then I, you know, came back and it was like night and day. Yeah. You know? uh -huh. So it was like I was in good, good shape before it happened. And then I just, you know, we had a guest on our show. Man, quite some time back uh, on episode 45, his name is Bill Gassiamas, and Bill was in his late 20s, perfect health, and he had a stroke. Not one stroke, but multiple strokes, and it radically changed his life. I'll never forget what Bill said. Like, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, but it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to start to look at life different. It forced me to start to live different. He actually said... 
I became a much better man. Like I was not a good man, not a great husband, not a good parent before this, but now I'm a very different man because of it. And he went, Bill went through it more than once and tell everybody it's, it's not just once, but you go through it more than once. So when does the cancer come back? How does it come back? What, what was happening in your life when you were diagnosed a second time? So the second time it was caught at a four month check. So once you get diagnosed for the next things, three years, you go every four months, you get a CAT scan uh-huh. every four months, a blood work every four months. So it was caught that way. Uh, and that was in January of 2011. At that okay. time, I'm still teaching, I'm still coaching, and I'm doing my athletics internship for my master's degree. Are you still doing chemo at this point, or are you kind radi- of done no, with treatment? Chemo had been done, uh-huh. but now it's radiation they're going to do this time. Yeah. So the way my oncologist described it was like I put down weed killer, and the weeds that never die with weed killer were coming back in. Yeah. So now the process was to burn them out, which was the radiation. So that was daily for two months. Wow. You Did you have to go to the hospital and they would? Well, there was a uh, outpatient facility yeah. uh-huh. uh, where my oncologist was. It, it's now a cancer center, part of yeah. MD Anderson in New right. Jersey. So, But this was in the beginning of it. So I would go there every day. I would teach, go for treatment, go down to grad school for my internship class or whatever come home, write my thesis, and do it all over again the next Hold day. Hold on. You kept teaching through radiation treatments? Chemo and radiation. Wow. I treat. I taught through both of them. Wow. Incredible, man. Um, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. So you described what helped you get through the cancer diagnosis and the cancer treatment and what it was doing to your body was your faith. You, you actually even said that you were trying to approach this like that so that God would get the glory. But I, I, I want to ask you just honestly, man, were there some times along the way that you asked the question, God, why me? Like, look at the, the guy next to me who isn't a good person and he doesn't have cancer. I'm trying to be a good person and do the best I can. And I get cancer, not just once, but back-to-back cancer and very severe. Were there some times that this really tested your faith? There were times when I said the why me question, but I think it was more why me. Is like, I wish I could see where you're going with this. Because I know that if God's got a plan, he knows where it's going. I don't. I won't know it until I live it. Right. So there's yeah. that like, I got it. Okay. Why do I have it? And what's the be all end all for it? And I think when you mentioned about um, Nick and saying it made you a better person, it also changes your outlook on life. You know, um, it just gives you the, you know what? Go and do what you need to do and live for God and live for you and yeah. make sure that you're doing the right thing. Because after both of the uh, cancer diagnoses and everything like that, I was kind of like, you know what? What will be, will be. And as I go through it, that is what's going to happen. I'm not going to sit there and say worry about things very, very minutely anymore because I've gone through something bigger than, you know, what color something's going to be. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, you're so, describing, yeah. I was just thinking, 
whatever the name of that famous, super famous country music song, Live Like You're Dying. Oh, and yeah, it's basically, Tim McGraw. Yeah. yeah, basically somebody who just found out that they don't know how much longer they've got to live. Like, I got a lot of stuff that I wish I would have done. I'm going to go do it. Mm-hmm. And then the end of the song is basically saying, why don't we all live like we're going to die? Because we're all, you know, dying. It just may be 50 years from now. Right. Um, I'm, I think there's something unique and actually something pretty impressive about your faith, Bob, because the average person is going to ask, why me? I would probably ask it. Almost all of the listeners would ask the question, why me, God? Why did you let this cancer happen to me? That's an absolutely normal question. But not a lot of people are going to sit there and say, God, you have a plan and cancer is part of your plan. I mean, you described it pretty well, like you're right in the middle of that plan, Bob. So you can't see where we're going with this thing. And you certainly can't see the finish line. I'm just right in the middle of it, living in my life right now. But to have the kind of courageous faith, I'm going to use this phrase today, the the a faith that's courageous enough to say, God, I really believe you've got this, but I don't understand where we're going right now. I feel like there's a lot of people listening that are right there. It's not cancer in their life. It's something else. And life is punching them in the face right now and has knocked them to the mat. Mm-hmm. And they know that they need to get up and dust themselves off and be unbeatable. That's why we do this podcast. But they're sitting there thinking to themselves, I don't know where this thing is going and I'm scared about where it's going to turn out. And there are no promises because I want to remind the listeners, at this point in your story, no doctor is crazy enough to make any promises about what your future looks like. No, no. So can you just describe how you were able to handle a back-to-back cancer diagnosis with that kind of courage? Because most of us would not be able to handle it that way. It's, it's odd, but... My grandfather, like I said, he went blind at 75. He had this sense of humor about it, and I'll share this story. We had a new pastor uh, right around that time, and they came out to the house to do a shut-in visit, and he was showing them his uh, magazines on tape, and one of them was Sports Illustrated. And pastor said, well, I guess the swimsuit edition's a bummer, to which he turned around and said, you know, pastor, they don't make them like they used to. And <laughs> and that, just that mindset uh-huh. of trying to you know, say, well, you know, I, yeah, it's not the greatest, but I'm going to make it work. And yeah. I'm pretty low, low key and just go as, because there's so many people out there that have it worse than me or, you know, had it worse than me at that time. And I just kind of realizing that eventually you're going to get to where you're going. And, and knowing, like I said before, that the whole idea of just that feeling that something told you to do something that you right. wouldn't have done yourself. With the epilepsy, that morning I had been driving around, right? And I didn't know what was happening to me was my aura. Uh But somebody protected me to get me to a spot where people could witness what would happen. Yeah. To then get me the help that I needed. And so I think that's why it's like, okay, yeah, it's a plan. I don't get it. I don't see where it's going. But I'm going to trust it. You know where to go. And right now I'm trying to... Think about okay, what are you going to use me for today? Yeah, and that's that's what it is. It's more or less. Yes, God has a plan. You're not going to know it, but eventually, at some point, you'll live it. 
That's where the word courage comes to mind for me, Bob, because I think a lot of the listeners, most of them probably say, okay, God, I believe you've got a plan, but I'm right in the middle of this mess right now and I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't know that I even trust that your plan is a good plan or best for me. So I want out. Basically, I want it Mm -hmm. to stop. And I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting the pain to go away and wanting the plan to, you know, wanting everything to be better tomorrow. There's nothing wrong with that. But having the courage to say, if this is part of your plan, I'm willing to live in the middle of it. Man, that is unusual. That's very rare. And I'm really, really impressed by that, man. Thank you. It's it's sometimes you just need to go with it. Yeah. And I think people always want control. And not having control is what throws people off the beaten path. Well, now we just got to the essence of your story that and what makes it special, what makes you unbeatable. Uh, because what I wanted to do is to try to kind of wrap this episode up is to tell you, Bob, can you talk to that lady right now whose marriage is falling apart? She's giving it everything that she can, but it's falling apart and she doesn't, she cannot control whether or not this marriage survives. Can you talk to that guy right now whose finances are falling apart or both guy or gal whose health is in a crisis and they want to make it better, but nothing they do will change the outcome. And they're realizing, I don't control what happens next. You've lived there. They're going through it right now. What would you say to people like that? It's, it sounds cliche, but you have to dig deep and move forward. And you can't sit down and just worry about it and worry about it and worry about it. You keep going. You keep yourself busy. Um, my wife, I, I didn't meet her when I was going through the cancer, but she says this all the time. She's like, just go, do what you need to do. God's got a plan and, and go. And that's as weird as it sounds. It's exactly what you need to do. And uh, Rodney Atkins song, if you're going through hell, keep on moving. <laughs> Don't and, stop, right? Keep going. Right. You, you just got to keep going. It's like the this the philosophical question is, you know, how far can you run into the woods? Halfway until you're running out of it again. So you may gotten halfway. You may be in your halfway. Don't stop. Because if you stop in your halfway, you're never going to realize where the other end of the forest is. And then that, it's going to look unbeatable. Keep going, man. It'll look beatable. But you want to be unbeatable, so you keep going. That is, I've never heard this analogy before. So I I think it's brilliant. If you're running through the woods and you don't know how far it is, keep in mind that if you're halfway through the woods, you're also halfway out of the woods. And Mm -hmm. it is really a matter of don't stop, don't uh, give up, don't quit halfway through the woods, which is the whole reason why this podcast exists. Man, I love that analogy. I'm going to quote you in the future, but I'm going to use this analogy with people when they're facing real tough circumstances because the worst thing you could do halfway through the woods is sit down and give up and quit. Keep going. You're halfway through, which means you're halfway um, out of the woods as well. Absolutely. 
Um, hey, thank you, by the way, for just taking a little bit of time out of your schedule. Thank you for being a guest on this episode of Unbeatable. I didn't have a chance to ask you this before we started this interview, but let's say that there's some people that are really struggling right now, and your story today has really encouraged them. If they want to get in touch with you or if they want to learn more about you, what would be the best way that they could hear more about you? I do have a uh, Facebook, I All right. have Twitter. Um, but also, you know, one of the things that they could always do, what, whether it's not reaching out to me or what, just sit down and realize, you know, you're worth it, go through, keep moving forward. Cause you know, I'm no different. I'm no, nothing, yeah. nobody's special. It's just that this is what I've done and they can do it too. That's probably one of the biggest things to take away from all. So basically, you're giving them your wife, Christine's advice. Just keep going. Don't quit. Don't yeah. give up, right? Go through it. What yeah. else? What are your options? Sit down and Absolutely. quit or get up and go through it. Yep. One of the reasons why I love having a guest like you on this podcast is because I don't want the listeners to feel like, oh, you have to have something special. You have to be a superstar. You have to be super strong in order to do this. No, if a regular guy like Robert Bob Baumgartner can face the health crisis the way that he's faced it, then you can face divorce, finances, health, whatever it is, and be unbeatable too. So Bob, once again, man, thank you for being my guest on this episode. Thank you. It was my honor. Man, I don't think I will ever forget this simple statement that Bob made. I've never heard it before. But it's absolutely true. If you're struggling right now, if you're really going through it right now, the analogy that Bob used, if you're running through the woods right now and you're tired, you're exhausted, and you don't know how much energy you have left, keep in mind that not only are you halfway into the woods, but that also means that you're halfway out of the woods. And all you got to do to get all the way out of the woods is keep going. So the reason this podcast exists is to just motivate you and encourage you. If a guy like Bob can keep going after back-to-back health crisis, then I hope you can keep going no matter what life throws at you. I really hope you've been inspired by this episode. And if you found us for the first time on your podcast, um, I want you to go ahead and subscribe to us and just start following this podcast because we'll keep delivering amazing guests like you. If you've been with us for a little bit, but you're not following us on social media, why don't you go ahead and follow us? We're on all of the prominent social media platforms. Just search for at Unbeatable Podcast. And who knows, maybe you will become one of our fans of the week. Like my friend, Karen Weaver. Karen, you are this week's fan of the week. I just want you to know you're an awesome lady. Thank you for staying so connected with the Unbeatable Podcast. And for all of the listeners out there, if you're going through it right now, and I mean you're really struggling right now, I want to give you something. It's a totally free gift. We call it the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. And it's a free PDF download. I'm not going to ask anything from you. You can get it by just simply going to unbeatablearmy.com. But the reason we created this free gift is just full. It's just chalked full of quotes. And it is our way of just trying to help you, encourage you, motivate you 
while you're right in the middle of the woods and you want to sit down and quit. So if you want that guide, just go to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for joining me this week. I hope you have a great week. See you next time.